Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, we praise you this morning that you have seen fit to enter the world and to do so as fully God and fully man, to do so in a way only you, the creator of all things, could imagine and achieve. Please fill us this morning with the joy of this Christmas season where we celebrate that you have come to be near to us, that you would raise us up into the fullness of eternal life, life in your kingdom. Spirit, please speak through your word now. Open our ears and prepare our hearts to hear it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Christianity is not unique among the world's religions, and I realize that's probably a terrible way to start a sermon, especially on the first Sunday of Christmas tide. So hear me out. Christianity is not unique amongst the world's religions in teaching that God has entered the world. In Hinduism, the god Vishnu comes to earth eight or nine times in different avatars, and each time to save, protect, or set a moral example. Buddhism and the other pantheistic religions are a little bit slippery on this account, but the basic idea is that the divine is already incarnate, trapped in the samsara cycle of desire and material life. And then, of course, there are the endless tales of the Greek and Roman deities flitting between Olympus and Earth, taking on human forms for all kinds of purposes, both benevolent and nefarious. And that's a tradition that's later carried on by the pagan religions of the Norse, and later still by groups like the Druids. Now, some smart alecks like to take this fact, that other religions also speak of the gods coming to earth, and they claim it as evidence that Christianity is just one more false story of a god's incarnation. Christianity is just one more variation on a Greek myth, they'll claim. A Roman heresy, perhaps. People have always wanted the gods to enter the world, and so they make up stories about the gods coming to earth. And the smart alecks are right. Again, hear me out. Humanity's myths, the myths that we've told through all of human history, they do reveal that humans have always desired God to come near. We've always had a sense, call it pride if you want to, or call it the image of God, that the creator of all things has an interest in us, perhaps even a love for us. And so we want this creator to show us his love. We want him to take an active interest in things down here amongst his creation. We want to see him face to face. Now, there have been some weirdos, mostly philosophers, also Muslims and Christian heretics who didn't want their God coming into contact with the world as we know it. They love the idea of God, but they never really love God. And they couldn't abide the thought that perfection could touch imperfection, that the infinite could be contained in finitude. And so they've objected loudly and longly to the idea that God could come down and enter his creation. Watch over it? Sure. Judge it? You bet. But enter it? Not happening. What they all fail to realize and fail to receive, the smart Alex and the philosophers both, is that only the Christian God, 
the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only the Christian God is able to enter the world in such a way that he meets and exceeds all their demands and expectations. Only the Christian God can truly meet and fill that constant human desire to encounter the divine face to face. Only the Christian God can truly take on human flesh, can truly enter his creation, and yet remain utterly transcendent and utterly divine because only the Christian God enters the world as the Christ, as God incarnate, as our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God is utterly unique, not because he's the only so-called God to enter the world. Our God is utterly unique in the way he enters the world. Matthew, Mark, and Luke open their Gospels concerned especially with Jesus' humanity. So they talk about his birth, his circumcision, and just on that note, tomorrow we'll celebrate a feast here, and we'll talk more about Jesus' circumcision, and I know that teaser will just fill the nave tomorrow for the feast day. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on that, his growing up, his walking around. In this way, they represent for us the experience of those who actually encountered the incarnate Jesus. Here was some guy, and he was doing and saying these weird things, and they all had to reckon with what his deal was exactly. And the big gradual reveal is that this man is actually the Son of God, is actually the Lord of all things, so that at the end of those Gospels, for instance, you have this climactic moment where a Roman centurion who's overseeing the crucifixion and the burial of this man is able to conclude, surely this man was the Son of God. Now John, God bless him, takes a very different approach He is the eagle-eyed gospel, the theologian's gospel, and he's going to open in his very first paragraph with what the centurion concluded at the end of the other gospels, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of God is God, and in Jesus, God became man. Now, every Christian when reading the beginning of John's gospel, should feel at least a little bit like the high priest entering the Holy of Holies. Because the language of John's prologue, its pacing, its elegant simplicity, its soaring profundity, this prologue is holy ground. And the prologue is, in my opinion, at least like a quarter of the reason that God invented language in the first place. And as we read this prologue, John teaches us the way that God entered the world. And how it is the only true way that a true God could truly enter a true creation. I don't know if John had the Hindu and the heretic, the Muslim and the philosopher all directly in mind as he wrote, but he's addressing and taking them all down. The first thing that John does is that he affirms patiently and precisely that Jesus enters the world as true God. Of course, He saves the big name drop reveal, Jesus, for verse 17. And he starts by introducing Jesus to us as who Jesus was before he was Jesus of Nazareth. He was the Word, John says, the Word with God, the Word who was God, the eternal Word who was in the beginning before beginnings had even begun, the Creator Word through whom all things were made, 
And in case we were unclear about what all things means, he also hits us with the negative way of saying it. There's literally nothing that was made that he did not make. So we're very clear. He is the creator, this word. But he's not just the word that creates and orders all things. He's also the life of men and the light of the world, the light before the let there be light, the light which illumines all things, which dispels all darkness. It's soaring language. And it's true language. And by it, John is saying, I'm writing this gospel about Jesus. And when I say Jesus, I'm saying God. Anyone and everyone else who claims even a piece of this character, who claims to be eternal, who claims creative authority, who claims omnipotence, who claims that they're the source of light rather than some faint refraction of it, they're liars. So Vishnu and Zeus and Siddhartha and Allah and Odin, all the rest, nothing but pretenders to the throne. I am God, and there is no other, says our God in Isaiah 46. I am God, and there is none like me. We're not telling stories anymore. We're talking about the foundation of reality, the God of all things, who made all of this all the time and upholds it by the word of his power. And the point is that when God enters his world, he does so as fully and truly God. And that's something no other incarnate so-called God can claim truly. And then having established the divinity of Jesus, John moves to something almost more remarkable. Jesus' true humanity, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, John writes. And then in verse 14, he hits us with this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here we could spend a year hashing out the details. Because the incarnation the inhumanment of the Word of God is a singular event. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God joins his divinity and his humanity. Nothing like it has ever happened before. Nothing like it will ever happen again. Nothing has ever happened that we might even properly compare it to. It's utterly unique, this joining. There are approximations, there are analogies that are partially but not wholly true. So in the Athanasian Creed, for instance, we read this. As the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. Obvious, right? Uh, Basically, that's just wildly gesturing at another mystery to explain an even deeper mystery, right? You know how every person is some mysterious joining of soul and matter, breath of God and dust, And how somehow when those things come together, that's a person. Jesus is kind of like that. Except it's God and man, divinity and humanness joined. Now, to the philosopher's credit, there are all kinds of questions that immediately arise when we're talking about the incarnation. How exactly can divinity be contained in humanity? What is human nature anyway that that God could take it on but but not be sinful but but still be fully human? Does does the Son of God still uphold the universe even while he's a human? The answer to that one is yes, but it would take a while to explain. And, And it took the church 400 years to arrive at a mostly workable answer to some of these questions. 
And even then, the answer that the church comes up with is an apophatic answer. Apophatic meaning a kind of definition that says what a thing is by saying what it isn't. Because you can't really say what it is, but you can say what it isn't. It's, it's the Chalcedonian definition. And it teaches that the divine nature and the human nature are united in the Son of God. And it uses four words. They're united unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. Those words don't really go together typically, right? So, so the divine nature and the human nature exist unconfusedly in Jesus. They're, they're not confused. Neither are they changed. Neither one of those natures gets changed by encountering one another in Jesus. They're indivisible. You can't actually separate them. And they're inseparable. Well, there it is again. You can see how it's kind of deep waters, what's happening in the incarnation of God. But honestly, what would you expect from the central mystery and miracle of all time and space. It probably shouldn't be easily explainable, and so it's not. For this morning, let it suffice to say that the God who created all creation, the God through whom all things were made, is uniquely capable of entering that creation while remaining fully God. That's at least what John says. He keeps it relatively simple, even if it's very profound. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And other so-called gods cannot compete here. For one thing, they would not want to. When false gods enter the world, they don't do so as incarnate. They're disguised. Vishnu and the other Hindu deities enter the world as avatars, these powerful illusions of humanness. Likewise, for the Greek and Roman pantheon, Zeus and Mercury and Apollo and Venus and Hera, they're always coming down from Olympus to manipulate and copulate and generally intervene in humanity, but they never become humans to do so. That would violate their honor, their divinity. And so when these gods return to their versions of heaven, they slough off their human disguises like a dirty coat. Because these so-called gods are not concerned, not really, with humanity. Humans are their playthings, their toys, their sports teams, Humans are good for a bit of entertainment when the ambrosia and the feasting gets dull, but they're not there to love. It's not so with our God, with the Son of God who became incarnate as the infant Jesus. Our God has taken a true and full human nature into his person, and he still has it. Jesus is still, right now, both fully God and fully man. Our Lord Jesus descended from the right hand of the Father to take on, to bear our all-too-human sins and sufferings, to show us a human life uncorrupted and then immortal. And our Lord Jesus ascended in his resurrected human body to the right hand of the Father. And so we can truly say that there is a man right now interceding for you and for me for our salvation at the right hand of the Father. Jesus becomes fully man. The Word becomes flesh because the true God truly loves us humans and wants not only to be with us, but for us to be with Him. The Son of God, who is fully God, enters the world as fully a man so that He might save and redeem humanity and bring us up to the divine presence. But more on that in a moment. This is where I need to switch gears really quick and point something out. So far, I've been comparing our God, the true God, with a bunch of 
false divinities. But in our cultural context, false divinities aren't really God's main competition for belief, right? In fact, I'd say that our age is much less concerned with the possibility of God becoming man than we are with the possibility of men becoming gods. We've been in an age, or we are in an age, of the human apotheosis. I know I'm throwing a lot of words out there, but y'all are sticking with me. Apotheosis, it's this ancient Greek word that refers, um, it, it refers to the moment in which a human becomes divinized, in which a man becomes a god and joins the pantheon of gods. So, so they would use it of Roman Caesars, for instance, when a Caesar would die in order to preserve the imperial cult, they would pronounce the Caesar's apotheosis. He didn't really die, they would say. He became a god. And I think that's what we're all about today. Historically speaking, this brief flash-in-the-pan moment, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that celebrity or vast wealth or global economic power somehow turns us into gods. If we can just achieve enough notoriety enough wealth, enough diplomatic power or global prestige, then we'll live like gods, better even than the gods of Olympus. And it's kind of true. There are humans alive today who live lives that to a regular person like me, their lives are basically unfathomable to me in their power and their pleasure and their influence. There are people who woke up this morning And their preferences and decisions will shape nations and economies. They'll eat and drink the world's finest food and beverage. They will wear the world's finest linens and silks. Their every desire is bought and paid for and with plenty to spare. And most of us, I would say, in some way or another, have been catechized to crave that life, to view it as essentially divine, And even the realists among us in this age of plenty, we think that a kind of divinity probably lies within our grasp, just on the other side of a pay raise, or just in the next tax bracket. Of course, none of this plenty, none of this splendor, none of this luxury does a lick of good against the perennial human problems of sin and death and judgment. But perhaps some lucky few among us can have enough fun to forget about those Don't be deceived. You don't need more stuff. You don't need celebrity. You were not made for stuff and celebrity. You need to behold God's glory, which is, in fact, incalculably more than the richest man or woman on earth possess. But we're entering a new deception now, one which I think is even more insidious and more powerful. We're just on the cusp of a transhumanist age, Another word. You may have heard that one before, though. An age that believes that technological progress and computational power will free us from the limits of our human minds and our human bodies, will make us gods over nature and perhaps even immortal to boot. And the devotees of this new religion will only grow over the next few decades, I believe, and its promises and its power will become increasingly difficult to resist. You will be as gods, the companies will tell us, and they'll have slick presentations to present it to us. God does not need to enter the world, they'll say, for gods will arise from the world. This too is a false promise, because it comes from false premises. The most brilliant technician alive right now 
the most cutting-edge team of researchers, they were not in the beginning. They were not with God. They are not God. We who are a part of God's creation are not and never can be the creator. We are shapers, certainly, and God intends us to be so. For better and for worse, we will continue to invent and build marvels. But our salvation is not and never can be an escape from our createdness. We will not escape the world. Because even if we did, we would only find ourselves there with all our sin and all our shame and all our wicked intent. Don't be deceived. We will not escape the world and become gods ourselves. We need God to enter the world. And this is the way that God enters the world. As fully God and fully man, already we're in utterly unique territory, but now John gets crazy. God enters the world, he says, in order to be rejected. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. God enters the world to be rejected. The word enters the world. The light enters the darkness. Our God comes among his people in full knowledge that most will reject him. And not just reject him, but seek to snuff him out. We'll be so busy with their own idolatries and dreams of divinity that killing him will seem a more convenient course of action. What kind of God could bear that kind of rejection? Let's compare. Zeus gets rejected. Lots of times. Apollo does too. Mars, Hera, Athena, you name it. They come down from Olympus because they've noted a particularly beautiful human or an especially nice orchard. They see something they want and they intend to take it. Sometimes people resist that. And when these gods get rejected, they get angry. And when they get angry, the objects of their anger don't end up saved or converted, unless you mean converted into spiders and laurel trees. Here we see how when humans have told stories about gods, these gods are just humans, but bigger. Christians do this too, unfortunately, with our God, though we try not to. We imagine that God is just like us, with our same set of motivations and desires and reactions and more, just multiplied a thousand times. So think about how well you bear rejection, and then ask, What God could bear any rejection? And yet this is precisely the way the true God enters the world, knowing that the darkness will seek to quench the light, knowing that the people of his own loving creation will try to kill him outright. Why does he do it? Why does he still come? And here we've arrived at our final observation, that God enters the world to make sons and daughters of God. God enters the world to make sons and daughters of God. And here the smart alecks perk up their ears again, because that sounds suspiciously like the old stories again, doesn't it? To be blunt, the old gods mostly appeared in order to exploit and assault. And so when the old gods entered the world, they would leave behind offspring. They'd leave behind sons and daughters of the gods, demigods, right? And what was their life like? More often than not, it was a torturous existence, to be a son or a daughter of a god. 
These demigods belonged to neither world, holy. They, didn't, they weren't quite human. They weren't quite gods. And so they found themselves outcasts in both worlds. Many, like Hercules, spent their lives futilely trying to prove their worthiness so that they could enter the world of the gods. And now here's John telling us, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Do we want this? Is this just one more story about a God leaving unhappy children behind on earth, striving to be like their godly father and and hoping to win a chance of entering his kingdom? You can probably guess my answer. No. Our utterly unique God has an utterly unique intention in making for himself a family of children, heirs of his kingdom. And we can know that by considering the method by which God brings new children into his family. The fully human son of God does not leave behind human descendants. No, the new children of God are born, John tells us, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a family to which every person can belong. Your lineage does not disqualify you. Your bloodline doesn't move you to the front or the back of the line. If you receive the incarnate word of God, if you believe in his name, God has made you his child. As Paul puts it, when you trust the Son for salvation, the Father has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart so that you can cry truly, Abba, Father. And if you are His child, you're also an heir. And all the blessings of God's recreated kingdom belong to you as surely as they belong to His only begotten Son. The God who created the world has now entered the world to begin his work of salvation and of recreation. And it begins with that rejection. It begins with the creator being rejected by the creation. He enters the world so that he can die in the world and die for the world, bear the curse of the law. The same God through whom all things were made comes to bear the old humanity down into death, down into judgment, so that then he can raise the new humanity into a new family, an unquenchable life, a new kingdom. And this is the way that God enters the world to make sons and daughters of God. Now, you may wonder why I've spent so much of this sermon contrasting the way that our God enters the world with these mythic tales of ancient religions that very few people these days still offer their allegiance to. Isn't dunking on Zeus kind of dated, you might be saying. In part, I've done it to help equip you against a lazy but still prevalent criticism of Christianity, right? They'll claim that Christianity is just a mishmash of old myths repackaged under a new brand name, when in fact they've completely missed that the Christian myth, the true myth, the one that's actually true, in that myth an utterly unique God enters the world in an utterly unique way, the only way that could be true. But there's another reason too. When we tell myths, when humans make myths, these are the ways in which humans have sought to explain that which was most true about reality as they've perceived it. The myths that humans have told are the ways that they're trying to make sense of the world's pain and the world's hope. And the myths of the Greeks, 
The myths of Silicon Valley, the very best myths that humanity could come up with, the myths that we're still telling, every one of them falls so short of the reality that God has revealed to us. Other religions can imagine God's taking an active interest in the affairs of earth, but they can't imagine them doing so as truly loving gods. Gods who are committed even in true flesh and true blood to the salvation of the world. The philosophers and the Muslims and the Christian heretics cannot imagine a God entering the world at all. And so they have their reward, their precious ideas, rather than the salvation of the world. The tech bros and the transhumanists reject God outright, and they imagine that they can build a new techno-babble to the heavens, that we can make ourselves gods. They too have their reward on this side of the kingdom of heaven, but all these myths fall utterly short of the utterly unique God who in the beginning was the Word and was with God and was God, through whom all things were made, in whom was life and the light of men, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us to be rejected by His creation and in His very rejection to save us from death and to recreate us as sons and daughters of the living God to whom with the Son and the Spirit be honor and glory, now and forever. This is the way God enters the world. Merry Christmas. Amen. Let's stand together.